Today's scripture is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 25. I will be reading it in German. The English will maybe be up on the screen. Yes, there we go. Häuft in dieser Welt keine Reichtümer an. Sie werden nur von Motten und Rost zerfressen oder von Einbrechern gestohlen. Sammelt euch vielmehr Schätze im Himmel, die unvergänglich sind und die kein Dieb nie mitnehmen kann. Wo nämlich euer Schatz ist, da wird auch euer Herz sein. Durch die Augen fällt das Licht in deinen Körper, wenn sie klar sehen, dass bist du ganz und gar von Licht erfüllt. Wenn sie aber durch Neid oder Habgier getrübt sind, ist es dunkel in dir. Und wie tief ist diese Finsternis, wenn das Licht in deinem Innern erloschen ist. Niemand kann zwei Herren gleichzeitig dienen. Wer dem einen richtig dienen will, wird sie um die Wünsche des anderen nicht kümmern können. Er wird sich für den einen einsetzen und den anderen vernachlässigen. Auch ihr könnt nicht gleichzeitig für Gott und das Geld leben. Darum sage ich euch, macht euch keine Sorgen um euren Lebensunhalt, um Nahrung und Kleidung. Bedeutet das Leben nicht mehr als Essen und Trinken und ist der Mensch nicht wichtiger als seine Kleidung. This is God's word. Today is the next installment in our sermon series, Blessed, Delighting in the Good Life. This sermon series seeks to proclaim that we as human beings are blessed when we are rightly related to God and experience the joy, comfort, and peace that only he can bring. However, our culture often encourages different paths to fulfillment that never equate to the goodness we can know through God. This sermon will explore generosity and how the act of being generous can reorient our hearts and minds toward God and the peace and joy he intends for us to experience. Let's pray and then we will dig in. Holy Spirit, pour out upon us wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be opened to receive all that leads to life and holiness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, we're talking about generosity. I hope you all brought your checkbooks this morning. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, but if the Spirit moves you, you all want new HVAC, right? That's what I hear. <laughs> all right, in all seriousness, there are three main points that I'm going to cover today. Number one, Human nature often opposes Jesus' teachings on generosity and wealth. Point number two, generosity is a tool to focus our attention on God and honor Him as our one true Lord. And point number three is Christ performed the ultimate act of generosity on the cross, and we can be generous by pointing others to His saving grace. I'm sure that many of your children have informed you that Halloween is coming up in two days. When I was a child, the excitement of Halloween centered on the accumulation of absurd amounts of candy while trick-or-treating. 
my goal was to collect enough candy to make myself sick for two weeks running. And I'm certain that this is a common goal among children on Halloween. I've even heard whispers that some of the kids here in St. Paul plan to go trick-or-treating at the homes along Summit Avenue because they hand out king-size candy bars. And that way, their candy collection efforts can be fully maximized. Um, the funny thing about ch uh, children's behavior on Halloween is it serves as an appropriate metaphor for how adults act when it comes to the accumulation of wealth. Our culture's maximum, maxim when it comes to wealth can be summarized as, however much you have, it's not enough. Take, for example, the infamous Bernard Madoff. Um, Morgan Housel's book, he's the author of The Psychology of Money. It's a secular book, but it's a, a great book on um, how people behave around money. And it includes a great summary on Bernie Madoff's uh, and humanity's propensity for the pursuit of riches. Uh, Madoff's Ponzi scheme was estimated to have lost investors somewhere between $20 billion and $64.8 billion. The crazy thing is that by any measure, Madoff was already extraordinarily wealthy before he committed fraud. He ran a legitimate market-making operation, which is a business that matches buyers and sellers of stocks. This division of Madoff's company was estimated to have made $25 to $50 million every year. Yet it was simply not enough. Madoff wanted more and he decimated the livelihoods of many Americans to get it. Madoff's behavior stands in opposition with the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6 verses 21 through 23 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. Jesus' teaching reveals that where we focus our attention affects our whole being. When scripture uses the word heart, it is referring to our whole being, including our emotions, our will, and reasoning. Madoff defrauded so many people because he set his sights entirely on the accumulation of earthly riches. He was so focused on the attainment of wealth that darkness overtook him and he was able to harm many people in his pursuit of it. Madoff's actions aren't anything new. Humanity's pursuit of more materials and wealth can trace its roots all the way back to Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 2 verses 8 through 9 say, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge, uh, of, the knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis continues on in verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Not only did Adam and Eve literally have the privilege of walking with God in the Garden of Eden, they also had the privilege of feasting on the multitude of fruits God provided them with. 
They had access to every kind of fruit we can possibly imagine, and these fruits were all without blemish because sin had not yet entered the world. Maybe you are like you are like me, and this autumn you did the very Minnesotan thing and made a trek to an apple orchard. Now, who doesn't love a good apple orchard? But they definitely have their flaws, right? I mean, think about it. When you walk through the rows of apples, more than half of them seem like they're on the ground, being devoured by squirrels, birds, and worms. And even when you think you spotted the perfect apple, you go to pick it, and you find it's covered in bird feces. And don't even get me started on all the couples posing in their matching flannels for the gram. The Garden of Eden didn't have any of these flaws, and yet Adam and Eve still fall for the serpent's lies. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The serpent's lies are the first deployment of false advertising in human history. She says, you will not certainly die. Well, guess what? Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and now we experience death. The serpent in this passage appeals to the human desire for more that we have been plagued with by ever since this moment. As human beings, we want more money, more power, more status, more possessions, and so on. The serpent says, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. More false advertising here. The devil appeals to our debased human nature, knowing that we want to be like God. Even when Adam and Eve walked with God in paradise, with every fruit imaginable at their fingertips, they still break God's one rule to try and gain more. And with Adam and Eve's actions, sin entered the world, and so did humankind's insatiable desire for more and our natural inclination to replace God with wealth and materialism. When we read this passage, it's easy to think, I wouldn't have eaten the forbidden fruit. This thought disappears quickly when I think about back to my days playing football for a local college not known for being a juggernaut on the gridiron. We needed to turn it around, and my meathead mentality naturally led me to believe that supplements were the way to more victories in football glory. And in case some of you are thinking it, no, this did not include steroids. I don't have the exact figures, but I do believe I dropped around $1,000 for a semester's worth of supplements promised to turn me into some kind of modern-day Spartan. Also note that as a college student, it took me quite a while to save that $1,000. Many of these supplements lacked the scientific rigor necessary to prove their claims on athletic performance. Their effect on me was largely creating very expensive urine. <laughs> Our football team did get better, but that was not due to my extensive supplementation 
but rather the athletic superiority of my teammates. Normally, I'm a person with, uh, that deals very much with facts and reasons, so this behavior is a bit of an outlier for me. Usually, I'll examine the evidence and try to make an informed decision about a topic as best as I can, but in this instance, all of that was out the window. I knew I wanted more football talent, and these supplements promised to have me NFL ready in a mere three months. I was utterly blinded by a desire to acquire, acquire more power and prestige related to a game. That's right, a game or something that we humans play for entertainment. It's not like I was a doctor trying to accumulate more skills to save more lives. I just wanted to be better at tackling people and padding my sack total for the stat sheet. That way I deploy, or <laughs> the way I deployed my monetary resources was in alignment with my selfish ambition rather than deploying my resources in a way that furthered God's kingdom. My actions were in violation with Jesus' teachings. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Do not store up yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Impeccable stats and wins on the football field aren't necessarily monetary riches, but they are earthly treasures that I was trying to store up. And they're not even that good of treasures. They're literally just numbers on a piece of paper that are forgotten relatively quickly. At this moment in my life, my heart was seeking to find satisfaction in something other than the Lord. Thus far... We've examined three examples of how humans can go awry when seeking more earthly treasure. The first was Bernard Madoff and how he stole billions of dollars. The second was Adam and Eve seeking more wisdom and to be like God. And the third was my illogical decisions to try and become a better football player. The common denominator here is human beings idolizing things God has created rather than worshiping and being in communion with God himself. Madoff idolized accumulation of wealth, Adam and Eve coveted God's power and wisdom, and I let my love of a game get out of hand. I'd, wa I'd wager that nearly all of us have experienced the tension to put something else on the throne other than God. In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. From Jesus' teaching, we can deduce that whatever we choose to rule our lives will require our complete devotion. Some translations of Matthew render the last sentence of this verse as you cannot serve both God and mammon rather than God and money. And what is mammon, you ask? Andy Crouch's book, The Life We're Looking For, which has informed much of this sermon series, provides a powerful description of mammon. Crouch writes, Jesus had in mind not just a concept, but a demonic power. Money for Jesus was not a neutral tool, but something that could master a person every bit as completely as the true God. Mammon is not simply money, but the anti-God impetus that finds its power in money. And how does mammon's desire for humanity differ from God's desire for human beings? Crouch goes on, 
God wishes to put all things into the service of persons and ultimately to bring forth the flourishing of creation through the flourishing of persons. Mammon wants to put all persons into the service of things, ultimately to bring about the exploitation of all creation. Mammon's influence on our society shows up in what our friend Morgan Housel, the author of The Psychology of Money, calls the man in the car paradox. He writes, when you see someone driving a nice car, you rarely think, wow, the guy driving that car is cool. Instead, you think, wow, if I had that car, people would think I'm cool. Subconscious or not, this is how people think. As human beings, we want to be respected and maybe admired by other people. One way we try to gain this respect is through the acquisition of materials and it, that we think signal that we are cool. But people that see us with the big house or the fancy car or the diamond bling don't respect us. They are more interested in how their possession of said thing would bolster their own status. This pattern sure sounds like we are in service to material possessions, and that is exactly what mammon wants. In the modern age, mammon can supercharge our yearning to acquire more materials, money, and wealth through constant comparison. Our species has always been prone to comparison, but now we can compare ourselves to each other 24-7 through social media. We see that so-and-so just bought a new car or took that vacation that I wanted to take or moved into a gorgeous home, and we think, man, they must be doing really well. And then envy broods up in our heart. Social comparison can fast-track us, becoming a slave to our work so we can make enough money to keep up with an ever-growing lifestyle. And of course, mammon relishes this cycle grabbing hold in our lives. How do we break the cycle of need of the need to acquire more in our lives. This leads me to my second point. Generosity is the key to usurping mammon and placing God in his rightful position as our one true Lord. First and foremost, we must establish who the earth belongs to. Psalm chapter 24, verses 1 through 2 say, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. In American culture, it's common to hear how hard someone worked to acquire their lifestyle. And in most cases, they worked very hard. But whatever possessions they own, they belong to God as part of his creation. They do not belong to us, but we are stewarding what he has given us to participate in the advancement of his kingdom. One of the ways that the Bible encourages us to be generous is giving to those in need. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 say... If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Maintaining a posture of stewardship can help us to share our possessions with a brother or sister in need because we know what we have does not truly belong to us. Whereas if we are caught up in mammon's artificial race to acquire more, it makes it much more difficult to part with our possessions. Furthermore, Scripture champions supporting the needs of the church and those who spread the gospel. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72 and commands them to live off the hospitality of the people living in the towns where they are ministering. Luke chapter 10, verses 6 through 7 say, If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. 
Stay there, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Uh, Generosity allows those in full-time ministry to focus on the work of spreading the gospel and ministering to a community. However, giving our monetary resources is not the only way to be generous. We can also give to others by volunteering our time and skills. Tim Keller has a short essay entitled Shalom that is at the back of the Biblical Theology Study Bible, um, which is a great Bible, and it has these great essays in the back. Um, And Keller says, experiencing shalom is multidimensional, complete well-being, physical, psychological, social, spiritual. It flows from all of one's relationships being put right with God, within oneself, and with others. Keller goes on to say, Christians in their daily work and life in their neighborhoods can and should find a thousand ways to repair physical, psychological, and social-slash-cultural shalom. How can we do that? Strengthening shalom means sacrificially giving your time, goods, power, and resources to all the various needs of your neighbors. Under the framework Keller lays out, there are a great multitude of ways to be generous. However, this sermon is about why the generous are blessed. Maybe counterintuitive to see why those who give up their resources, time, and power may be uniquely blessed, but they most certainly are. We will dive into that further, but first I want to take a moment to dispel how the generous are not blessed. Those who are generous are not blessed through being owed favors from those they assisted in a time of need. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, say this. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus teaches us that true generosity is giving with no expectation of return. This teaching stands in contrast with the practices of many politicians. If you've ever watched a political drama, it always seems like the characters are trying to accumulate IOUs. That way, when it comes time to pass a bill or get out of a tight spot, they can call in the favors they are owed. When they are helping someone, they are not helping out of a generous posture, but rather a posture of self-interest that feeds mammon's desire to put human beings in service to accumulating more money, more power, and more possessions. Additionally, generosity does not lead to being blessed with wealth in this life. I wish I didn't have to address this, but unfortunately it is a belief that has bubbled up in our culture through the preaching of the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel teaches that faith in God and donations to the church will bring about God's blessing and increase one's material wealth. This is effectively a steaming pile of garbage. If prosperity theology is true, how can Job be a man of God? Job chapter 1 verse 8 says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. 
Despite Job's uprightness and fear of God, all of his possessions are stolen or destroyed, his sons and daughters are killed, and he is afflicted with painful sores from head to toe. Under the prosperity gospel, how could a man who fears God and shuns evil be afflicted with such calamity? Job provides us with an example of how to respond through suffering in Job chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. The conclusion we should draw here is that we should not give with any expectation of being owed something by our fellow man or earning material blessings from God in this life. So what then is the benefit of being generous? Other than seeking to bring about greater shalom in our communities, as Keller stated, when we give, we break mammon's power. When we give away our resources, our time, and our skills with no expectation of gain, we thunder punch mammon right in the throat. This is because we're no longer playing the game of trying to accumulate more earthly riches. We have placed God in his place as Lord over our lives, and when we do this, we aren't slaves to mammon's unending cycle of needing more, and this is a tremendous blessing because we have usurped a power that wants to enslave and exploit us and move to serving God who wants to bring about the flourishing of all creation through the flourishing of persons. When we put God in his rightful place as Lord over our lives, we can adopt a life without the need to constantly strive to accumulate what our culture says we need. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. If God is the master we are devoted to, we don't need to worry about our lives because we know how the story ends. We know that God is making the heavens and the earth new for those that have faith in the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ. This passage always reminds me of a homeless man named Robert I met on a mission trip in San Diego when I was in high school. Short-term mission trips are funny because we think we're going to serve someone when we usually end up being the ones that are blessed. And that was the case in my experience meeting Robert. The purpose of this trip was to reach out to the homeless population of San Diego and provide them with some companionship. We would sit on benches or curbs with them and attempt to have a conversation. When I approached Robert, he said, tell me something good. And I said something like, the sun is shining and the sky is blue, which in San Diego is sort of like saying, it's cold during Minnesota's winter. It's like, yeah, duh, bro. And Robert says, no, no, no. Tell me something good about God. And me stammering, well, uh, God is good. And Robert then says, okay, let me tell you something good. He proceeds to zip open a backpack to unveil a Bible which appears to be his only possession aside from the clothes he was wearing and launches into an exegesis on the entirety of the book of James. Robert clearly cherished God's word and was marked by such joy despite having next to nothing in terms of material possessions. Robert's posture of contentedness has stuck with me since we met. 
He was content in having almost no possessions because he had everything he needed in Christ. This leads me to my final point. Christ performed the ultimate act of generosity on the cross, and we can be generous by pointing others to his saving grace. Jesus did not need to come to earth to save us from our sins. He had nothing to gain from dying on the cross, yet he did so. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 say, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, coming, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus became a man, died on a cross, and had all of humanity's sin thrust upon him, all for no personal gain. Because of Christ's actions, we will be washed clean of our sins through faith in him. Ephesians Chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 say, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Christ's work on the cross is without doubt the most generous act ever performed in all of human history. Through faith in Christ, we will be able to experience the incomparable riches of his grace for eternity in the new heavens and earth. And for this reason, the most generous thing we can do for others is not necessarily giving of our time, skills, and resources, but pointing to Christ's work. Again, Tim Keller in his essay, Shalom, says, if the, fountain of all of, if the fountain of all our problems is the loss of spiritual shalom, i.e., a right relationship with God, then the most fundamental thing we can do about the misery of this world is to say to others, and here Keller quotes 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, 19 through 21, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm a little hesitant, but I'm going to quote a Christian rapper in this sermon. Uh, Trip Lee sums it up well. Our most basic need is to be ransomed by Jesus. When we give of our resources to someone, we provide temporary relief. Dependency on Jesus Christ provides relief to those who have faith for eternity.